0: This episode is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society, seeking to amplify women's stories and deepen our collective understanding of the many roles women play in history.
1: This episode is also made possible by our Patreon supporters, Skylar Collins, Deb Potter, Eugene Lewis, Jules, Robin Brown, Mary Jones, Kim Hokinson, Janelise Cannon, Jill Harrigan, Jamie Lang, Maria Carla Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantel Oliver, Katrina and Kristen... Caitlin McTaggart and Lindsay Cummings. You can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a dollar a month and help us create new episodes. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. This time, we are going to do something a little differently. Okay. We are going to start with a man. (laughs) Okay. His name is Robert Kappa, and we are a few miles outside of Madrid in July, 1937. Uh Uh-oh. Yes. 1937. We are deep in the middle of the Spanish Civil War. Okay. The nationalist faction has been announcing loudly to the world that they have taken the region and that they hold it completely. Everyone believes this. There's no way to prove otherwise because there are no journalists in the area. Except Robert Kappa. Robert Kappa is there taking pictures of everything that's going on and sending them to newspapers and magazines, proving this is a lie, that the Republicans still in fact hold the city and that things are not going as badly as the nationalists would have you believe. This is crucially important, because this false narrative will impact the way all of Europe sees this war. And Robert Kappa is the only person there to show the world the truth. There's just one problem. Robert Kappa doesn't exist.
0: Oh, a convenient cover for a woman? No! Oh, Robert Kappa <laughs> does not exist.
1: Robert Kappa is two people, one of whom is Gerda Taro, one of the most influential wartime photojournalists of the Spanish Civil War. And nobody's ever heard of her. Quite a few people have heard of Robert Kappa. In fact, Robert Kappa is widely regarded to be the greatest. Wartime photojournalist in the history of the world. Uh, so it feels important to find out who this woman was. Huh. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of. To tell us who Gerda Taro is, I have brought back the wonderful Kip Wilson. Woohoo! Our guest on our episode on Sophie Scholl, author of the incredible books White Rose and The Most Dazzling Girl in Berlin, and now her new book on Gerda Tarot, One Last Shot.
2: Hello, I'm Kip Wilson, and I'm the author of three young adult novels in verse. My first one is called White Rose, and it was about Sophie Scholl. And we did a very interesting episode here on What's Her Name about Sophie Scholl and that was when I got super hooked on this podcast and all the other amazing women featured here. And then my latest book is One Last Shot about Gerda Taru, a Spanish Civil War photojournalist who just captured my heart from the moment I met her. And I'm so glad to be able to share her story.
1: This is an amazing book. I can't say enough about it highly, highly recommended for anyone interested in this period of history. Is it another or young adult novel in poetry? It is. It yes. is a novel in verse. Cool. Another example of Kip Wilson's ability to just get right inside a subject's mind. Gerda Taro is alive in this book. I had studied a bit
2: about the Spanish Civil War, but I never found a way, like, in to find a person interested story to tell that would make sense for me. But I saw this Google Doodle on her birthday. So on August first, 2018, I saw this Google Doodle of this impish looking girl with a camera. Who is she? I want to be friends with her. (laughs) Dug right into more and more and more research as one does. I'm married to a Spaniard and I've been going to Spain every few years for at least 20 years. And I've I found the history there so compelling and so tragic, but also filled with so much passion and hope that being able to find a personal connection to it was something I was looking for, and I found that through
1: Gerda, who also was not Spanish. I also love Spain, as you know, Uh was just there a few weeks ago. But I was not in any of the places that Gerda was. Well, actually, I was for six hours, but I didn't realize it until afterwards. <laughs> Gerda Taro, born Gerda Poharile, was born to a Jewish family in Stuttgart, Germany, 1910. They were recent immigrants from East Galicia, which is part of the Austro Hungarian Empire. Uh huh. And it will become Poland after World War One. They are a middle-class family. She lived with her parents and she had two younger brothers and her dad was always trying out all these different businesses. Gerda is extremely intelligent, does extremely well in school.
2: She had an aunt and uncle who lived nearby as well and this aunt was a bit more well off and she helped to finance education. She had her go to Switzerland to boarding school. She's paid for that. She, it seems, was also like a mentor, educating her how to fit in because they were a Jewish family in Germany.
1: The family is operating in kind of a halfway space. They are Jewish at home, but trying to blend in in the world outside as much as possible for their own safety. Gerda is interested in education, in languages. She's very interested in boys. (laughs) She had a really great friend, Meta.
2: They went to boarding school together. And when they came back, that's when Gerda started to get boyfriends. And for her, that was a very fun thing. (laughs) She was engaged. He was quite a bit older than her. And these photos of the two of them, they're just so striking because she is just this cute, impish little girl. I mean, she's old enough to be dating, <laughs> but the man was actually physically very tall. <laughs> and so they were juxtaposed in such a way that it just seemed like, you know, I don't think they're going to end up together.
1: <laughs> Spoilers, they don't. <laughs> Gerda's family moves to Leipzig, which is about 300 miles away. As Gerda's making new friends not a student anymore, sort of discovering this whole world out there. The engagement ends pretty quickly, but they stay good friends. Of course, things are getting more complicated in Germany and Gerda is very interested in politics. She got into all kinds of things there, started to
2: get very politically active at this point. This is the early 1930s. Things are getting more heated, things are getting more dangerous. And politics in Germany at that time really is going to the extreme. So she was very much involved in leftist politics and her younger brothers were kind of following in her footsteps, sometimes literally sneaking out after her when she would go passing out leaflets or hanging up signs. And eventually that landed her in a bit of trouble that she ended up getting arrested by the Gestapo. This was in 1933
1: terrifying, obviously, especially when looking back from this point. Her parents must have been absolutely beside themselves. Thankfully, her family is able to get her released after a while through a weird loophole of an otherwise awful policy. After World War I, Germany had decided that anyone born outside the borders of Germany who was Jewish was no longer a German citizen. And also, the children of any Jews who had been born outside of Germany lost their citizenship, Mm -hmm. even if they were born in Germany, and became wherever their parents were from. Mm -hmm. So even though she is born in Stuttgart, has lived in Germany her whole life, Gerda is legally Polish. Okay. This was bad. But in this situation, it may have saved her because it was actually Polish diplomats who got Gerda out. Her parents went to the Polish ambassador's office for help.
2: The family talked with a Polish diplomat who then got her out of the prison. And after that, the family was, we got to get you out of (laughs) here.
1: Gerda needs to leave the country ASAP. Things are getting worse. She's now on the government's radar. They probably realize she's not going to stop, and she's obviously a target now. But where can she go? Poland. Well, Poland, but actually, for Gerda, the obvious choice was France. She speaks fluent French. That year in Switzerland helped a lot. Uh And her friend Ruth is already there working as a model. Oh. It's also better politically than all the other options, so eventually off she goes with assurances from her parents that they and her brothers would be looking for ways to leave and would probably be following her out of the country very soon. Landing in Paris, Gerda is at an advantage over the average refugee with her language skills. So she is able to blend in a bit more and get work that others are not. The French
2: weren't, you know, oh, yay, we're so happy all you immigrants are here, but they could get by. And certainly by speaking fluent French, as Gerda did, she was able to get better work. She worked in different offices. She was one of those people that, like, she was good at everything. Ruth had been there a little while, and they got an apartment together, trying to make ends meet day after day. What can we do? Gerda did have a job in the office for a while, and Ruth was trying to make a go of it as a model. And she had blonde hair and blue eyes and was very in demand. And so one day this kind of scruffy-looking photographer came up to her in a cafe and was like, hey, come meet me at this park. I want to take photos of you. She's like, I don't know. Well, I'll go if I can bring my friend along. And that was one of my favorite scenes to write. The poem is called Unexpected. Reese's photographer is so intensely studying something through his camera's viewfinder, that he doesn't even notice us approach at first. But Ruth nods, points, tells me, that's him. Only then does he lower the camera, look our way, break into a smile, and the world seems to pause for a moment as I take in this dark-haired, dark-eyed, handsome thunderbolt of a man, and when our gazes meet, sparks pass between us, electric. Ruth marches toward him, presents us to each other, Andre Friedman, Gerda Poparelli. And even after Ruth shakes his hand in a proper Germanic hello, Andre and I wordlessly agree to greet each other with a bisou, bisou on both cheeks. Perfectly Parisian, though we clearly anything but, and perfectly in tune with each other.
1: This is Andre Friedman, a fellow refugee from Hungary, who had fled first to Berlin, then to Paris, and is now working as a photographer.
2: And I just, I do love the two of them together so much, even though it was certainly not like a happy ending, perfect romance. They had their ups and downs for sure and partially because Gerda was such an independent woman, and she would not be put in any place. (laughs) She had her own agenda, and when Andre fit into it, that was fine. And sometimes he did, and sometimes he didn't. And I found that really interesting to explore because I feel like as women, we're taught, oh, you want this perfect romance thing. But maybe you don't. Maybe you want to have your own adventures, whatever that entails. And maybe that doesn't mean being with one person for the rest of your life. Maybe it means going to different places and doing all kinds of other things. If she had married him and stayed somewhere, I just can't even imagine that if that it wasn't her. <laughs> A lot of immigrants coming into France or other countries, a lot of them became photographers because it was a way to make money, not necessarily
1: knowing the language. You have the image, right? But Gerda does speak French, so she can up André's game. She starts writing the captions for his photos so he can sell them to newspapers. And
2: in in the meantime, she hadn't studied photography. You could just do it and you didn't need any license any kind of authorization and so she's like I want to learn this just the way she is all the way through her life I think just like eager to learn everything <laughs> and at the time she was renting a room from these other couple the man was a photographer with his own dark room and of course he was happy to help her and she learned all these things <laughs> and she picked it right up and she started taking her own photographs and he's showing her more things, and other friends are showing her, and she's really getting it. And then Andre gives her his Leica camera, his Leica that he had had been putting in and out of whenever he needed to.
1: This
0: is the very early days of the first portable cameras. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about, yeah, like to be a photographer then. It's not like being a photographer today.
1: No, I mean, these are the first cameras that are not on a giant stand with the photographer under a Mm. cape and a 45 second Mm -hmm. shutter capacity. You can carry these cameras around with you. And that means the boundaries of the art of photography are exploding Mm. in these huge displays of creativity and totally innovative new ways of doing this thing. As a team... Gerda and Andre are a great match. He's an excellent photographer. She is ambitious and clever and strategic and knows how to point his talent in ways that will be the most effective. She is a great marketer. Mm. She is a great businesswoman. And she's swiftly becoming a brilliant photographer herself. She makes unusual choices. She's finding unexpected new angles new ideas about how to do this thing. But it is becoming increasingly clear that their very ethnic names, and especially Gerda's very obviously a woman name, are decreasing their options. Mm -hmm. And they really want to break into the very lucrative American photography market. Mm -hmm. And so they decide to invent a new photographer, an American photojournalist named Robert Kappa, and sell his work to the papers. Oh,
0: that's exactly what I would do.
2: There wasn't definitive evidence of, yes, either one of them was the one who first came up with this. But the way I have it in my book is that they came up with it together, but with her saying, hey, let's, and him saying, that's awesome. And it makes sense because he's kind of bumbling through life, looking through a camera, if you find her right but she's okay we need a business and partially from her upbringing watching her dad try all these things make see what works and and herself these last months in Paris trying to figure out hey your photographs aren't selling but they're very good I can sell your photographs let's pretend you're this guy Robert Kappa. doesn't that sound like a great name who wouldn't want to buy Robert Kappa? and I'm kind of push that ball a bit more into Gerda's court because I feel like she would have come up with it. Andre is his agent. Okay.
1: Smart. And they are both taking photos and selling them as Robert Kappa. Cool. Boy, this Robert, he's prolific. He's prolific and brilliant. And boldly going places other Americans aren't going. Yes. I mean, this is a, an American right there in Paris mm-hmm. that all these American newspapers can take advantage of. Several of the newspapers recognize, wait a minute, this is clearly the work of Andre Friedman. Wait a minute. This is clearly a photograph by Gerda Terro. Their work is recognizable enough mm-hmm. that the secret does not last very long, at least in European circles. But what it does mean is that for these early years of Robert Capa's work, we have no idea which of them took which pictures, and they seemed perfectly content with that. And now let's pause for a word from our sponsor. This season of What's Her Name is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society. Think you know Utah history? Think again.
0: The Women's History Initiative highlights Utah's dynamic history makers eight sovereign nations in Utah since time immemorial, pioneers, explorers, immigrants, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and dreamers who have made a home there ever since. Join the
1: society to read the Utah Historical Quarterly, attend free virtual events, and get news about the
0: future Museum of Utah. Visit history.utah.gov UWH to learn more.
1: And the long-awaited statue of what's-her-name favorite Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon will be installed in the National Statuary Hall collection at the U.S. Capitol within the next few months, just the 13th woman featured in the hall. Follow at Utah State History on Instagram to catch Martha on the move as she makes her
0: journey to D.C. And teachers at all levels can find all kinds of curriculum resources on their website, history.utah.gov U-W-H and then in
1: 1936 the Spanish Civil War breaks out the pair are determined to go and make a name for themselves uh, by
0: covering this new war and she's really into politics and actively engaged in anti-fascist causes which would draw you to Spain I'm guessing that
1: a lot of our listeners don't know very much about the Spanish Civil War. This is not something that is widely covered in outside either <laughs> pop history or academic history outside of Spain. So here is the Spanish Civil War in 60 seconds or less. The Spanish Civil War goes from 1936 to 1939. The two sides are the Republicans and the Nationalists. The Republicans are the left-leaning side, and they are loyal to the democratically elected government of Spain. The opposing nationalists are conservative-slash-traditionalist-slash-fascist. This is not me making that designation. It's what they called themselves. <laughs> Fascism, Fascism was, was, the was a political party. Sure. <laughs> they are kicked off by a sort of military coup and then eventually by a guy named Francisco Franco. Mm-hmm. More people have heard of him, probably. Sure. Than of the Spanish Civil War.
0: You have Hitler driving fascism, Mussolini in Italy, and Franco in Spain. So this a political tide that's washing over Europe.
1: Yeah, in this interwar period between World War I and World War II, people are trying to decide, mm-hmm. are we going this way? Are we going that way? Are we going to go authoritarian dictator? Are we going to go democratic republics? Which means this war is complicated, and it may have been about any combination of class, religion, xenophobia, an ideological battle between Dictatorship and democracy, between fascism and communism. Mm-hmm. It may have been about all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Like most wars, at the core, it is about power mm-hmm. and who should hold it. Like every war. And this is a little confusing for people in the US because in our history and in our media, and our movies, We have been thoroughly primed to always think of the rebels as the good guys. (laughs) The Princess Leia's and Han Solo's out there fighting the man and taking on the dictators. Mm -hmm.
2: They're like going against the bad guys who are oppressing you and so on. But in the case of a democratically elected government, that rebellion is not the good guys.
1: The rebels in this case are the ones trying to install a dictatorship. Because they don't like all of these other people having a say. Of and- course, a
0: democratically run government also has hidden sources of power and money and authority and
1: Yes. And and as Hip Wilson puts it, in this war it's hard to find like the good guys, right? There were plenty of bad guys.
2: There were no good guys, really. And it is so sad because everybody was affected by it. Everybody suffered in some way.
1: So off Robert Caro, a.k.a. Andre and Gerda, head to Spain. Uh And they start photographing the war. This is new ground. Nobody has really done this before. You couldn't photograph wars up close and personal, sort of embedded with the troops. Uh When you need a tripod and a full minute of perfect stillness the only pictures we've had of war are extremely long far away shots of battlefields or after portraits of shots, generals yeah portraits of generals or shots of the aftermath with conveniently non-moving mm. dead bodies mm-hmm. we have not ever seen a war and these two are running around the battlefield taking full advantage of the mobility that these cameras offer them yeah.
2: Obviously back then it's not like now where we have our phone snapping all the time. That's why her work was so important, as uh, she had this camera, she had however many rolls of film, not that many. They had to get what they could get, and you'd be lucky if you get a, a few good shots out of a roll. I took black and white photography in high school. I remember my photography teacher telling me, If you get one good photo on a roll, call that a good day, you know? And I take the same into my writing too. Like one poem a day, that's a good day, you know? <laughs>
0: so interesting to think about it from this modern perspective, because now everybody's got a camera in their pocket. Nothing goes <laughs> undocumented, but yeah, back in a world when most things were undocumented... Yeah, nothing was documented. Yeah, if you have a camera, you're the one who chooses what people are going to see. Now some of these photos
1: we can tell who took what, because for a while they were using different cameras that produced different size of pictures. <laughs> But some of the time, they are using the same camera, and most of their negatives are just labeled Kappa and Taro. Now, wait a minute. Kappa? Yeah. Why not Friedman? Right. As soon as the secret is out, people realize that Robert Kappa is these two. Andre Friedman decides he's going to take the name Robert Kappa.
2: And along with it, let's change my name to Gerda Taro. Sounds pretty good.
1: So these papers are getting negatives from Kappa and Taro and just publishing under whichever name they decide this is. Usually Kappa, surprise, but sometimes Gerda Tarot. And she starts getting recognized as herself. Newspapers are now starting to contract with her alone. But the fact is that a lot of these incredibly iconic images that they are producing that are credited to Robert were probably Gerda Taro.
2: Gerda and Robert weren't always together during those years that she was in Valencia and he was up at Guernica. Another time he was in Madrid for a while where she was still back in Paris. So there was a lot of back and forthing and sometimes
1: together and happy to see each other, but sometimes just on her own thing. And in these places, Gerda is often the only photojournalist there. Her photos are unusual. They're unusual even in a time when everyone is still trying to figure out what's going on with this whole mobile photography thing. Her decisions are different than the men around her. She is taking photographs of the civilians, of what's happening on the sidelines of the battle, not just the battlefield. Some of her most famous and really affecting photos are photos of a large group of families waiting outside the morgue mm-hmm. to find out if their loved ones are dead.
2: Mm. Looking at those photographs and then contemplating the kinds of things they would have both seen was just, I think some of the ones in particular in Valencia, Gerda was there when there was a bombing. It was in this hospital. So it was the hospital upstairs and the morgue downstairs. And she went in and took photographs.
1: It's an incredibly, it's a, such an intimate image and a really humanizing, shocking image. It made a huge impact in the press and the way that people were seeing this war yeah. for the first time. They're seeing the real impact. Of war, not just on the battlefield, but on the people that live near the war.
2: The morgue is now and that building now is the public library. And I went in there last summer and yeah, it's just so eerie. This is where like all the wounded were and also the families waiting outside the gate. And you can just imagine all these people waiting for word.
1: And I don't want to make it sound like she's only doing the softer softer side side of things. Human interest Mm -hmm. stories. She is getting amazing war images, amazing battle images, as good as any of the men. We'll, We'll put as many of these photos as we can on our website and then link to some of the ones we can't. Again, the copyright issue becomes tricky when nobody knows who owns the copyright and when does it expire. But I will link to everything I can, because they're incredible. Together, she and Robert take some of the most famous photos of the war, including the first image ever of a soldier in the act of dying. Nobody had seen this before. It was unsettling and hard to believe Mm -hmm. that someone could capture that this famous
2: photograph, his most famous photograph ever. It's called The Falling Soldier, I believe. The soldier actually getting shot and falling to his death. Was it staged? Is one question. Did Kappa actually take that photograph or did Gerda? Anything is possible. So because I wrote a fictional story, I fictionalized what might have happened, and that's one of 20 possible things that could have happened, is that Gerda was there with him. Because this is one of the stories he did tell. I mean, he told various stories about the event, and he had his camera up and was click, click, clicking. And they came back, they had sent the roles back to Paris, and then got to Paris and the photograph was already in the press. It is a fantastic photograph.
1: And Gerda quickly becomes deeply personally involved in this war. She is ideologically Mm -hmm. invested.
2: You know, people say, what's a word that describes your philosophy, right? And my word is the same one I think Gerda would choose, which is (laughs) anti-fascist.
1: This is not academic for her. She has seen fascism up close in her own life. She has been in a fascist prison She is watching this impact on her family in Germany and she knows what's at stake here. Speaking of her family in Germany.
2: One of the biggest questions for me and it was one of those that we really couldn't answer was about why her brothers specifically, why did not they go with her? I wish they had I'm sure she wishes they had, because her whole family was murdered in the Holocaust. There's not a lot of information about it. They had gone, after being in Leipzig, they went down to Yugoslavia to be with the rest of the family who was kind of gathering there as they were getting pushed out of other places. Then things got terrible there as well. The mother had died, but the brothers, oh, how I wanted to hear good news about them, and. They didn't survive.
1: She is really clearly committed to fighting fascism with her whole energy. There's no pretense of being an unbiased observer here. She is one of the gang here. It, Embedded with the Republican cause and deeply beloved by it. Alexander Surek, who was an adjutant to a Spanish Republican general, wrote about Gerda in his memoirs. We all loved Gerda very much. She was petite, with the charm and beauty of a child. This little girl was brave, and the division admired her for that. She was so passionate about the suffering of the Spanish people. Interesting
0: choice of phrase, little girl.
1: Yeah, it, you can tell a lot of yeah. sort of paternalistic yeah, yeah. thinking going Romanticizing
0: on here. The sweet little girl who brings a certain energy and wholesomeness to the cause, yeah. et cetera, et cetera.
1: But she was also tiny when you look at yeah. photographs of her. She was very reminiscent of Catherine Leroy. Exactly.
0: That's what I was going to say. From, this, a, this from Paris. This tiny little woman. A very <laughs> tiny blonde in there photographing the horrors of war. Yeah. And
1: and maybe it's, yeah, giving them some sort of sense of, here's what, what we're they're fighting, fighting for. for. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Clearly we're the good guys because she's with us.
1: But, of course, that conviction and passion and connection to the cause often placed her in danger. As biographer Jane Rogoyska says, she got too involved. She over-identified no. with the Republican cause. She got into this conviction that she had to bear witness. And she kept pushing. And Kappa warned her not to take so many risks. She's making what seem to the people around her unwise choices. She is putting herself in harm's way. For example, that scene we opened with, just outside of Madrid in 1937. Franco's troops are attacking. They are inflicting heavy losses. It's becoming clear that the Republican side is going to lose. Taro is there. On the front lines with the Republican soldiers photographing as bombs are falling all around her. Planes are strafing the ground inches away from her. And General
2: Walter, who's like, No, you guys, get out of here. Things are going to go really bad really soon. She's like, Okay, we'll go. Okay, what we got to do is move over here so he won't see us. All the while, her buddy is like, yeah, come on, right? That's enough, right? Did you finish your rule? Can we go?
1: She absolutely refused until she had gone through all of her film. She finally agrees. Okay, fine. And she and a reporter friend who's with her finally head for safety. She is thrilled. She has all of these incredible photos that she knows are going to be very important. They're carrying all their stuff, and
2: they see General Walter's shiny black cover this is great, we'll hitch a ride. They get up to it and it's filled with wounded. So General Walter's not even there. He's already gone. But they've got wounded people in the the car. So they just hung on, one on either side of the car. And the car takes off down the road. Last year, I got to be in this exact spot and just imagine the chaos. I even, I laid down on the ground, the baked ground, baking further. There's just Something about that Spanish July heat. I had this beautiful blue sky, and I'm sure it was filled with gray clouds, and black and all kinds of airplanes flying over, and the bombs going over, and the artillery so loud, and the lines constantly
1: changing tanks. She is hanging on the outside of the car as it is bouncing along through this war zone. A German plane flies over, strafes everything, hits a Republican tank, kills the driver of the tank. The tank rolls out of control and rolls over Gerda in the car. No, She is crushed under the tank, a Republican tank. Oh, boy. It's horrifying.
2: And she was in bad shape. They got an ambulance eventually, actually arrived and took her off to the field hospital.
1: She is horrifically no. injured, mm-hmm. but all she can think about is Do you have my camera? Do you have my film? The nurses and the doctors assure her Yes, yes, we have your film. It's fine. We have your film. We have your cameras. They don't. The film uh. is gone, it is never found. Uh. They rush her into surgery. They attempt to save her life. Ugh. It's impossible. And she dies at 27 years old. Just a few years ago, a photograph was discovered that is probably of her in the hospital dying. The family of the... The doctor who treated her, who did surgery and tried to save her life, has this photo that he had always told them was of Gerdotero. They recently published it, and based on historians, you know, researching the provenance of this picture, it, it is probably her. Her body is taken back to Paris. She is given a hero's funeral, Thousands of people in the streets to honor Mm. her. Kappa is devastated. Mm -hmm. He goes to Indochina and is photographing the war there. He eventually will have to flee anti-Semitism again. Moves from Paris to New York in 1939. Fast forward to 1995. Three boxes of photographic negatives are discovered in Mexico City. What? Uh huh. Okay. Yes, Mexico City. And they've got Kappa and Taro's names on them. Wow. As far as we can tell now, as the Nazis are closing on Paris, Kappa's assistant, Irma Weiss, rides off on a bicycle with these boxes of negatives to Marseille. After Weiss is arrested, the negatives disappear until they turn up in Mexico City. Wow, The assumption is that cool.
0: they must Somebody have been handed off to Mexico. a Mexican
1: diplomat yeah. at some point. Yeah. The nephew of a Mexican diplomat found them. And then another relative who was a filmmaker realized Based. what they had and went, uh, we need yeah. to tell people. The so-called Mexican suitcase contains photos by Gerda Taro, Robert Kappa, David Seymour, and a few rolls of portraits of Gerda Taro by a photographer named Fred Stein.
0: Wow. These are my favorite
1: portraits of her by far. One thing that did help me
2: with Gerda was these photographs of her. Not just the photographs that she took, which are also very telling, but also the photos of her. You can just see that personality. You can just see in these photos, she is such a goofball. These are not like your typical photos of a woman in the 1930s. She's having a blast. And she's just so full of life. Even the photos of her on the front, there are not that many, but there's one where she's like crouching behind another soldier, taking fire. And she's so passionate about being there. You can see it in the way she's holding her body and everything. And there's another standing. She's like kind of photobombed almost. This photo that Robert Capo is taking of something else. And there she is on the side, just kind of waiting for her moment. The biggest difference, I think, working on Gerda's story versus Sophie's story is that with Sophie, I had so much material that was by Sophie. We had diaries and letters. Gerda had none of that. There's one telegram that we have that she definitively wrote, right? But I studied these wonderful biographies, and this, this one in particular by a German woman, Irma Schaber, And she was able to interview some of Gerda's friends and people that did know her when she was growing up. And so that was invaluable. But I mean, I couldn't have written the book without these two fantastic biographies.
1: If Robert Capa is the greatest wartime photographer in history, Mm -hmm. and these photographs Robert Capa took of the Spanish Civil War are some of the most important innovative war photos ever taken, And nobody can tell which of these photographs were taken by Andre Friedman or Gerda Taro. Then,
0: (laughs) Gerda Taro. She's half of the greatest. Yes, half half of of the greatest photojournalist of all time. What she did mattered.
1: But now, everyone from biographers to the photography community to brilliant authors like Kip Wilson are bringing her story back, reinstalling her in full technicolor, and I am so grateful that I've gotten to meet her. Yeah.
2: Snapshot. I hold everyone I love in my heart. My parents. Oscar, Carl, Meta, Peter, Ruth, Georg, Maria, Ted, Robert, floating, floating, eyes closed, but photographs flash through the viewfinder in my mind. Aperture closing now, signs that even once I'm gone, a part of me might remain.
1: Huge thanks to our guest, Kip Wilson. Visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com to find photos, links, resources, and of course links to Kip Wilson's amazing books. There you can also become a Patreon supporter and help us create new episodes of the podcast.
0: You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook where we post lots of photos each week.
1: Music for this episode was provided by Tria Logo, The Mini Vandals, Sir Cubworth, Doug Maxwell, Aaron Kenny, Daniel Foster-Smith, And Esther Abrami. Our interns are Katie Boucher and Kennedy Just. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle.